Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. My version of Tiny Todd was pretty odd. I mean, I got hydrochloric acid for Christmas one year when I was, I guess, in fourth grade and loved it and wanted it. And, and I still have all my fingerprints. So remember, safety rules were a little different back then. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Todd Oldham. Yeah, Todd Oldham. Love him. So you know him as a fashion designer, having built a fashion empire in the 90s, and as a DIY hero from his Todd Time segments on MTV's House of Style, which personally, I think that was the first time I was ever exposed to DIY makeover craft stuff. And I feel like it really had an impact on me growing up. He's also a designer of almost everything, and a publisher and author of 24 books, including Handmade Modern, and most recently, Queer Threads, Crafting Identity and Community. Throughout his career, he's traversed the treacherous divides between class and genre with the deftness of skill and authenticity of spirit that serve to erase boundaries, invite collaboration, and champion all forms of creativity. And on top of that, he's a force for good in the world, helping the next generation of creatives to access their potential with his line of kid-made modern arts and crafts supplies, DIY projects, and more. This talk is full of solid wisdom, and we can't wait for you to hear it. So let's talk to Todd. 
My name is Todd Oldham. I live in New York, and I get to make all kinds of stuff because I can't breathe if I don't. <laughs> Man, I know that feeling of suffocation. It's real. It really is. It's palpable. I can. I feel things very strongly in my body when something's not right, and it's a real thing. Well, the world is blessed that we have you sort of championing that for everyone and showing us how it's done. <laughs> oh, you're very sweet to say that. So let's go back to the very beginning. If you could <laughs> paint the picture of your childhood for us. I understand you grew up in, in Texas. Can you tell us about your hometown and your family? What was it like? I was born in Corpus Christi on the water, but it was sort of more of my family was just kind of moving around. And that's when I popped out. My parents are remarkable and amazing and super brave. And we just moved around and had all kinds of adventures. We moved all over the States. We moved to Tehran, Iran when I was 12, I guess. We lived there for four years. So I've been wow. to many, many different schools. Yeah. But what it does is it creates a new way of being where you're kind of at home no matter where you are. Home is more about just the community that's around you or your friends or your family. So I don't get so stuck about where I am. I travel well. That adaptability comes in handy for sure. It does. And then you just kind of, you develop more of a way of seeing instead of a what of seeing, and then things are a little easier. How did Tehran shape you? Oh, man, it was pure magic. We had moved from Fort Worth, Texas to Tehran in 1976, I guess, something like that. So indeed a contrast. Mm -hmm. And one of the most brilliant things, it was like somebody threw open the blinds for me. And it happened in the airplane ride over there because I'd, I'd, I'd been on many airplanes around the States, but never overseas at that point. And looking down and just, I knew that there weren't lines between all the countries, but really seeing that this was one big glob, it created this strange thought of why we, why we consider ourselves separate. If those boundaries are all false, then you know it just created a new way to kind of look at the world and cross-pollination of ideas and cultures and beauty. It was like a permanent opening of my eyes at that that has never, ever closed. And I think that's why I've been so open to appreciating so many different cultures and trying to represent them almost simultaneously in so much of my work, certainly during the fashion days, which I imagine I probably couldn't have had the fashion career I had if I was doing it today. We can get into how times have changed for sure. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That opening of your eyes where you were able to see a boundaryless landscape is really important. I can understand how that has informed you and your career, but also your personality. How did that like show up in your youth and adolescence? Like, What were you making and creating? And was that supported by your family or were they vexed by it? Oh, hardly vexed. No, my, okay. I, I adore my family and we still continue to spend our, all of our time making stuff. We'd had a TV, but it was really inconsequential as a kid. We had a craft table in the middle of the living room that we just made stuff all the time. Oh my so gosh, our natural instinct magical. was just sit down and yeah, it was it was a great way to grow up. And what it, I realized in hindsight that what it did, it, it created an appreciation of being process oriented instead of outcome oriented. Oh. And that has led me to so much personal success in my life, because whether something sold or didn't sell doesn't have anything to do with my appreciation of my efforts, or if it goes through my filters as a complete experience. So it really took a lot of pressure off. Everybody seems to gather around the TV. In old days, it was the fireplace and the hearth and telling <laughs> stories. But then that became replaced by the TV. But gathering around the craft table is amazing. No wonder. Oh, it's so great. The conversations that, that come out of the, the a restful, relaxed mind are so, it's not just blather. You know, it's, it's a really rich experience and it's easy to do. It's a little bit of a, a time shift. And I don't know how, you know, now with all the digital 
interface we have with our phones in our hands that way too often. I wonder if that's possible. You know, I, I'm so grateful that we I had such an analog childhood. What about adolescence growing up in Texas and being such a boundaryless creative? Weirdo. Yeah. I mean, were you a weirdo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm very pleased to be. I come from a, a long line of them. So, um, yeah, it's, it was slightly inevitable. I never really cared that much what other people thought about what I did or me really necessarily. So I kind of had an invisible adolescence, I guess, of sorts. I moved around for lots of school. So I was just that invisible guy in the corner that had weird shoes on that nobody has a story about, which is great. I just graduated and moved on. But my home life was super rich and my ideal life was very, very rich. Just school was super boring. They weren't challenging you, were they? No, but that's why I just stopped going and went and spent all my time in the library in the art room. I have no idea how I graduated, but I did. <laughs> um, but I just stopped. I, I, I missed the part about proving the learning. I loved the learning and I sucked it all in and remember it beautifully. But I just didn't know. I didn't care if you thought that I knew it or not. That's a bad attitude for school. Hmm. But because so, I learned. I really did learn. Yeah. And you did graduate. So after graduation, you moved to, to Dallas, correct? Yeah, it was. I was in this place called Keller, Texas, which we'd moved to after. Well, we came back from Iran and had a brief stay in Denver. I actually went to Columbine High School, Ikes, um, for one year. And then we moved to Texas for yet another year. I kind of gave up in 10th grade, I think. I'm not, I am not advocating this or suggesting this for anybody. But yeah, for me, it was just like, oh, this is not, I'm done. Which, you know, not great. But I thought I knew everything. And I just focused all my time on learning things I was interested in. Well, there's value in that, too. Yeah, I think there is. There is. I think so. If you're a hothouse flower and you're willing to just know everything about your little world, yeah, that's the way to go. What did you end up doing after high school? What kind of job did you get? In 11th grade, I got hepatitis. And I was in bed for a few months and I learned, I taught myself to embroider. And so I'd already known how to lightly do it, but I, I taught myself really to bead at that point. And I started making things for people in high school. So I never remember a conversation about college with my parents or me bringing it up. And it was just so clearly that was not going to be for me. I set up my business in 12th grade and then got rid of the nuisance of school, as, as I was thinking at that point. Mm-hmm. And just started. And within, I guess, about a year, my first collection was at Neiman's in Beverly Hills. So it went really fast. Whoa. I I have sort of a follow-up question. Did your parents have some sort of entrepreneurial gig that was moving you around? Or what gave you the confidence to know that you could participate in the economy with your creations? It wasn't the confidence. I think it was just the other choices. You know, I, I always think about trading time. You know, like for me, money is like trading your time for money. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of always thought like, well, what am I willing to trade my time for? And then you don't, it just feels better to go about, I think it feels better to go about life like that instead of trying to make everything so money-based. And it just yeah. kind of worked out. But my parents were, I, I have no idea why they were so brave. <laughs> and I inherited that from them too, where they're brilliantly smart people, but they don't mind not knowing what they don't know. And they're very, they know that confidently that we can go learn it. So I think that's the part they passed down to me that's just been the fuel to do anything. I mean, if that's, if you think you can do that, you kind of can. Yeah, it's not that you have to know everything. You just have to have the confidence that you can learn it. 
Yeah, yeah, figure it out. You know, being an auto uh, autodidact is one of the best ways to go through life. School is great. Everything's great, but you have to have a thirst for knowledge and continue to suck it in and and rearrange and also, you know, what as uh, those of us that are involved in design, we, we reflect society through representation or perhaps we can offer healing. There's so many things. So we have to evolve and shapeshift, you know, by the hour practically. But once you have your foundation, your roots, the way your your filter you put things through, it's very easy to do. Yeah, I think that also reinforces the idea that we're not all the same. We don't all learn the same way and we don't all work the same way. And so, you know, it's important to recognize. And I think this goes back to Amy and I had a conversation about educators, like noticing certain kids learn in a certain way or certain kids have an interest in a, in a, a specialty where you can kind of help shape them to go down the path that is best suited for them and trying instead of trying to force them into some you know, strict way of doing things. Oh, it's so much smarter. And it's one of the things we address daily with this new adventure we have called Kid Made Modern. And whether you're a cognitive learner or a visual learner or whatever your method into new information is, we want to make sure that the doors are wide open and we're, you know you're welcome and we're clapping for you. So it's a, it's a big deal, you know, this, this kind of flexibility and we call it our invisible safety net. You always want to have that invisible safety net that will catch you no matter what. You can, all your decisions will be proper if you're over this invisible safety net. So I want you to connect the dots for me between what happened when you graduated high school and started working and getting the gig for MTV's House of Style, the Todd Time gig. What happened in between that? Well, there was a few years in between that. I was living in Texas at the time, so I started making collections there. And I'm often asked this uh, in students when I'm at school, like, "How do? what do I do? So I always tell them just to miniaturize it, miniaturize any situation and reduce it to its core. So if you're going to be a fashion designer, you have to think of something to make, find someone to buy it, duplicate it, and then get paid. That's four things. I can do four things. So by keeping it fresh and boiled down, it, it felt like totally attainable. So I just started doing my four thing method and it started working. And I would make something. And then I just happened to be in the right place that Neiman Marcus was in Dallas. And a friend of mine worked there. Actually, everybody I knew worked at Neiman's. I was the only person that didn't work at Neiman's. And it just kind of, I I kept tripping, sort of falling face first into all kinds of great situations. And this was one of them. And they were opening the Beverly Hills store and it just kind of all blasted off. And then that kept going for a while. And I had a lot of fun doing that. I mean, it was a great time, a great learning experience. And then I moved to New York, I guess it was in 89, after I'd caught the eye of this Japanese company called Kashiyama. And Kashiyama in the 90s was a really, or late 80s and 90s was a big deal. They represented sort of the world's most interesting artists in clothing, like Jean-Paul Gaultier and Dolce & Gabbana and that stuff. So they, they brought me into the stable and things just blasted off immediately right from the start, because I think I had been doing it for about 10 years now. I partnered, my mom has always been my partner. And we celebrated the same making techniques and all of our methods that we developed since I was, since a little boy. And we were able to form and forge a great business out of it and do things that were very, very different. So in my second collection, I based the show on an episode of the Three Stooges I saw as a kid called Slippery Silks. Have you ever seen that one? Do you, do you, are you, well, Three Stooges are pretty great. But this oh, one slippery silks, <laughs> yeah, amazing. But the, I, the whole reason for me becoming a fashion designer was with Three Stooges. And it, it was this one called Slippery Silks. They were plumbers and they went to this house and the lady thought they were fashion designers. So they had to put on a fashion show as plumbers. And <laughs> I, I, that, I was like, oh, I, I understand this. 
So it just stuck in my head uh, from a little boy. I never forgot that. I've seen it a million times since. And so I based this collection on that episode. It was as though a plumber had designed a, or, you know, <laughs> an architect designed it. And it was a massive hit. Like that show was was just blasted off for us. And this new show had just come on about one month prior to that on MTV called House of Style that was done by this amazing woman, Elisa Bellatini. And she just saw that there was this space in the world, what people were interested in, but it was being covered by either like Elsa Clinch, who was on CNN, loved Elsa, but you know, she had a very mature voice that no one terribly young was, was going to be resonant with. There was just nobody speaking to this young, new kind of thought process. So out came House of Style. MTV had come to that show and had liked that so much. They said, well, can you show us after we cover your, your show, can you show us where the inspirations come and like how you do it? So I said, sure. And so we did it. And it, it was a massive hit uh, in the segment. We showed how to reupholster some furniture and I pulled out all my DIY tricks from being a kid and it worked. So it yeah, kind of blasted off and whole generation, man. <laughs> it kind of did. I'm kind of amazed at how it just seemed really natural for us because it was a very small group. It was uh, Elisa, Cindy Crawford, and I, and a handful of genius producers who's now, it's so fun to see crawl credits on like at the end of The Voice or all these, all the major shows now have all people that came from House of Style in the 90s. That was such an incredible brain trust of people that are now still in control of everything. You just don't know it. So they'd say, okay, you have four minutes and 19 seconds. What are you going to do? So I, I'd say this, and then I'd go do it. And I'd edit it, cut it, and hand them the tape. And MTV would put it in and broadcast it all over the world. I mean, it's, it's insane. That would never be now. Can you imagine oh, just no. someone turning over a tape and the Worldwide Network just playing it? <laughs> no. I mean, it's insane. But it that's just the way we worked. It was, it was just a very different thing. And then we got to talk about the real, the core of this, which is that style has nothing to do with money. I'd show you how to redo something from the thrift store. And then I'd interview John Galliano in the, you know, a segment a bit later. And it was all the same to us. But I guess it wasn't the same to everybody, and it kind of created a new way of seeing. Researching and thinking about you and your life and your career, I see you as an eraser, like a very... <laughs> I see a hand, a very skilled illustrator with their hand on the eraser, just erasing all the stuff that doesn't need to be there, that the rest Aww. of us think needs to be there, or that think defines defines these arbitrary boundaries. And you're the guy who's like, nope, that doesn't need to be there. Let's just embrace creativity and fuck class, class and genre. Like, that's not necessary here. <laughs> well, I, I agree. That's very kind of you to say thank you. It's just, um, I didn't, I'm not haughty and it, yeah. it's all interesting. Like, you know, puddle in the ground with spilled antifreeze is just as beautiful as a trip to the Louvre. Like, I, I feel it in the, my body in the same ways. So it's once again, it's as I mentioned earlier, it's the way of seeing versus the what of seeing. And then it's everything's interesting. Well, you've taken that eraser mentality, the way of seeing versus the what of seeing, and you've built it into a multidisciplinary design studio, which is it's a tremendous example for creatives who are trying to not get pigeonholed or want to be able to stay engaged and do the stuff that they're interested in as opposed to what somebody's decided they're valuable for. It's absolutely possible. I'm not going to say that it's an easy thing to do to choose the other pathway that's so, you know, I, I never walk on paved roads, but I'm so comfortable on unpaved roads that the paved ones hurt my feet worse. So I, I'm between that and then realizing when I was about 16 that I was unemployable, that was the most beautiful, revelatory day of my life because I thought, <laughs> why would I have to think 
that just that was in no way depressing to me. It just was like you have to create your own opportunities. This is a blessing for you. And I just embraced it and it never left. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this message. Support for Clever comes from Mitzi. Meet Mitzi by Hudson Valley Lighting. Everyone deserves to enjoy the benefits of good lighting in their home. And now everyone can. Mitzi mixes classic with contemporary in a full line of charming chandeliers, pretty pendants, versatile sconces, and fresh, flush, and semi-flush mounts. Mitzi is always on trend with thoughtfully simple fixtures at an attainable price point that work for apartment dwellers and homeowners. Learn more about Mitzi and enter to win a cute table lamp at mitzilighting.com clever. That's M-I-T-Z-I lighting.com clever. Let's talk about the hard part, though. I mean, you said it's as hard as you want to make it. Are you referring to your own internal resistance or? Most of the struggles, I can just tell you what personally I find to be a struggle. It's when an idea doesn't bloom fully or a situation is chipping at an experience. I never lose the fact that I'm here to serve and designers can participate in these systems however they wish, but I don't think anybody needs anything. I mean, nothing I would do what I mean. No one needs anything I do. So I have an opportunity and then an obligation to make them as interesting and beguiling and helpful and useful and earth-friendly and non-destructive as possible. It's really nice since it's not, since someone needs it, you have permission to make magic or attempt it. What kind of advice would you give somebody who's wanted to also build a multidimensional career or profession for themselves? Ah, just first, just do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> nothing happens without the doing. And I had a, a really beautiful experience happen in the 90s. It was the, the guy that ran Viacom, Tom Preston, was a really cool guy. And we were at dinner one night. And he turned to me and said, you know, Todd, you have brand permission. And I asked, what? And he said, you have done so many things now that no one will ever question whether you can do something if you want to do something new. And that was like, a, that was a gift from the heavens to me to realize that all of this crazy eyebrow raised expressions I've been getting my whole life actually added up to it all kind of working out in the end. It was really a nice thing. So I think that's seeking brand permission, I think is one of the best goals one could have for a varied and interesting career. And you get brand permission by just doing everything as well as you can. Hot damn. <laughs> I wish I wish <laughs> I had heard this years ago, but that is amazing. <laughs> You know, I've, I've been eating off my disc for 40 years now, and it's uh, uh, completely shocking to me that this is true, but it is possible. You know, I, um, my, all my advantages were loving parents and a creative mind. So, and that's a big, big, super big advantage. But you, if you can, you don't need society to help percolate you. You can force the percolations or, or instigate them yourselves. Speaking of percolating things, so you've done... Like you said, you've been doing this for 40 years and you've done so many different things. Is your creative process basically similar to just like a DIY project? Is it like a lot of trial and error? How do you come up with ideas and then how do you process them and figure out, you know, where they're going? Well, let's see. How can I explain this? I know this system really clearly and I know how to work with my creativity fully. I guess what happens is I kind of, it's a, it's a, Oh God, I'm not using any proper words here. That's okay. Think of, give, this is free form. It is a free form thing. It, it's kind of like the if someone said go do the Watusi and everybody would do it a little different. 
mine is, I've kind of formed mine in a, a unique way. So it's like I have a hat on that I can spin really quickly to make it to match whatever my task is. But most of the time my hat is on neutral. And I always prefer an idea for idea's sake, because those are the ones that lead to the, I think the richest results. So you can keep going with it and, uh, you know, working with it. And then eventually you want to make sure that, you know, you have all the ingredients to get it out there, but I have a, I kind of can wear test almost everything in my head at this point. That's one of the reasons I, I really lost interest in doing fashion is because it, I could build anything in my head as fully as I could build it with my hands. And it just, what's the point, you know? So you have to be able to build, to know where you're going and build it, but I can remove a lot of the problems in my head, in my head before I have to start using my hands to do it. It's just, I guess it's from being fine-tuned. Yeah, definitely. A lot of experience. So once you've kind of formed that idea in your head and you're ready to execute it, is that easy to communicate to others? Because at this point, I assume there are other people working with you on these projects. Um, there so are, how does yes. that we have, How does that work? My design team here is exquisite and I love them all and I'm in awe of them all. We run a very different kind of system here. We're pack mentality. We're not layered in the traditional ways that design studios are. There's not a lot of bosses here, and we just trust that everybody's going to do their job and nobody's checking on you. So we pull things apart and come back together, and that way the ingredients are never watered down. Every part of it is as rich and full as it can be, and when it comes back together, it gets even better. And the way that I've set my design studio up is to honor the instincts of design and making. And we start at 10 o'clock. We, we're really flexible. You got to let it kind of ebb and flow when it needs to be. The design of the studio, I think, is really helpful to that because I went so far out of my way to make this place not look like an office. And it doesn't. And it feels fantastic to be in here. I do think atmosphere is so important to creativity. Oh, when the atmosphere absolutely. is designed for, to just squeeze as much productivity out of you, but not valuing like the essence of your creative genius, I think you start to feel a little bit like a... A drone or a robot. Well, yeah, and then you become less than, and that's I. You know, I, I'm much happier working with my office here that's full of people I'm in awe of that would probably be challenged working in traditional modes. God bless them, and I'm so pleased for them that they have that challenge. Everybody in here really should be and will be heading their own stuff. You can just tell. Mm -hmm. We're so blessed to have an office full of artists that are as uh, vibrant as this team. I want to know about creating products and clothing for children. You touched a little bit on some of the psychology and philosophy that goes into Kid Made Modern, but can you talk to us about how you get into designing and making those products? And do you sure, scale sure. back down to Tiny Todd when you're thinking about what kids would enjoy? I do a little bit, but remember, my version of Tiny Todd was pretty odd. I mean, I got hydrochloric acid for Christmas one year when I was, I guess, in <laughs> fourth grade and loved it and wanted it. And, and I still have all my fingerprints. So um, yeah, oh, so remember safety rules were a little different back then. <laughs> I love that my parents bought them. I mean, I adore them so, but I, I'm always just, that, that's one of my memories that makes me so impressed with them that they trusted me to hand hydrochloric acid to me. They're not stupid. They knew what it was, but they knew they could trust me. And I, I, it was really sweet. What is some of the psychology and philosophy that goes into the Kid Made Modern? First of all, can you give our listeners an overview of Kid Made Modern and then talk yeah. to us about the core tenets of it? 
Sure. I'll try not to use so many words because I love this so much I can talk way too long about it. <laughs> it, it. Kid Made Modern sort of started out as a love note to my parents. I've made a lot of books. I, I, my 24th book came out last year called Queer Threads, which was the first LGBTQ overview of fiber artists. It's really something. Oh, wow. So I, I've done a lot of these books, but a few books back was one called Kid Made Modern. And it was a love note to my parents who really just spent so much time teaching us all. And I wanted to kind of impart the beautiful ways they taught us teaching is technique, but leaving things open so that we could express ourselves within it. So it's kind of three parts. There's that part. One of them was a response to the when I get to go in design schools. And there was a time I was seeing this sort of bad habit developing where things are being torn out of magazines and duplicated. And uh, we're losing that beautiful ticklish joy that hits you when you stand in front of a painting that moves you or hear a song that you know brings a tear or those kinds of things. We lose that passion that, that then turns into inspiration and removes the need to duplicate. Uh, so we wanted to try to address uh, that in a way. And then also a third part is this thing called uh, the allabouts, which sort of demystify or explain art making or craft materials or techniques. So squish all those three things together. And we had a book I was really pleased with. So we started doing live events uh, and fundraisers uh, for the New York Public Library and different museums around uh, with the book and started seeing that as we were using other people's supplies, there might be room for maybe something a little better because i mean i love duct tape but was vexed by the fibers that are in it and if you want to make a, a wallet i realize this is not what duct tape is made for but should you mm-hmm. wish to make a wallet and you tear it then there's all those fibers so i worked with the tape company to have the fibers removed planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. And we just did a lot of little things to sort of make it all better. So at the time, a pal of mine, uh, Michael Francis, was at Target stores. He was a really great. He was a, a big a visionary that was, you know, at the beginning of sort of Target turning into something spectacular. And he's always been a big fan uh, and a big supporter of us. So we, we asked him to come in to show, and we made prototypes of KidMade, what we were thinking it could be. And within a few moments, we had an all-store buy and a three-year guarantee with no tryout, which we were, our jaws were on the ground. So clearly we had something that seemed to be in the air a little bit. And we started with Target and it just snowballed and grew and grow and, and continues to to go, including what this season now we have partnership with J. Crew that just came out a couple of uh, days ago. It's a, a really fun clothing collection. And I'm most honored that we're now working with MoMA making their uh, ch- their kids uh, art and craft kits and supplies. So it's been it's been really fun watching it grow from this thing that was really dear to us to this thing that seems to be dear to others. Yes. Sorry, that was a lot of words. No, I love it. And I love the motivation behind it, starting out as a, as a love letter to your parents, but in a, 
in the same way that's a that's a love letter to the kind of childhood that supported and embraced whatever came of your curiosity and yes that's true and nurtured it and gave you the tools to play around with it and then gave you the validation that that's a good way of learning and that's acceptable it's yeah. so great i it's <laughs> my it's my mom and dad they were i mean they were children themselves having children and i don't know maybe we all just raised ourselves at the same time but they had such an amazing and at the time you know i was born in 1961 and if you the not i mean certainly open-minded but amazing that that they were felt no need to put these brackets on my brothers and sisters and I. They really just were kept it really open and, and up for it. Yeah, that is amazing. And it's nice to hear that you recognize it and appreciate it so much. I mean, did you ever encounter challenges in life because you were allowed to be so open? Oh, yeah. No, I have arrested development for sure. There's lots of things I'm terrible at. But what I'm good at, I'm really good at. So I guess that counts. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I want to ask a little bit about, I guess it's definitely professional, but it's also personal. I mean, from the outside looking in, you seem like a guy who's got, who's surrounded himself with a pretty solid tribe, like really great, creatively fruitful, long lasting relationships, both personal and professional. Your mom's your partner. I've, you know, I've met you and Tony and Tony's been there yeah. forever and. Yeah, we've been together 37 years now. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, High that is. five. <laughs> really? Thank you. We Ooh. switched it to five years about 10 years ago because I got so sick of people gasping. So <laughs> yeah. now, now we just say five years. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the secret to creating these magical relationships? And let's, you know, I mean, if you could try and diagnose somebody who didn't have the parents that you had growing up, what... How would you offer some advice for putting the energy into relationships? Respect, I think, is pretty much the backbone to any relationship, no matter whether it's personal or, you know, uh, professional, whatever you go. So that certainly is the most important part. But it's important to also realize that we're how different we all are. And I appreciate that. So maybe if you had parents that weren't supportive, I mean, hopefully at a minimum, they might just not have been supportive of your ideas and hopefully not they were not cruel to your mm -hmm. ideas. That's a different sort of situation, having to overcome some terrible information you get pounded with enough information as a kid that you can't do something or you're given the wrong supplies without assistance you think it's your fault and yeah. that's a ridiculous thing so you're going to have to if you're not getting supported by those around you you'll have to find the things to appreciate about them uh, and move on to be sated in being appreciated in other ways so be open minded to find your tribe and i think you find it a uh, moth to the flame you know if you if this is of your interest and you don't find you have support in your family find a knitting bomb circle or uh, <laughs> uh if you live in new york a uh, taco bell drawing club run by jason poland stills all the time so there's all kinds of groups you can kind of sidle up to and meet somebody new but i always found that just by saying wait you know, like taco bell drawing club exists that makes my heart feel good that these people gather at taco bell just to draw because just drawing is worth it yeah. And there are going to be other people that believe like this too. And if you don't believe it, that's fine. You know, cheers, go, go about your life. But for those of us that uh, these sorts of things are very, very important, they, they're not just like a little important. They, they reassure you. They cuddle your heart. Mm -hmm. They give you like a reason to keep breathing because we're, we're not normal. And that's great. So we have to understand that the, the things that are special about us are, are worthy and deserving of, of the anomaly behavior. Hmm. I wish you were my brother. 
<laughs> I adore my sisters. <laughs> They're really fun. My sister Robin was my fit model from very early on. And even when we got when fashion got really big, she remained my fit model. And the number of times I've stabbed that poor girl with, pin, with pins. And in shop class, uh, my in tenth grade shop class, I made a, a pair of lathe platform shoes. <laughs> wow! Oh yeah. my gosh! You must have given the best holiday presents. <laughs> oh, Christmas is so good at our house. It's oh, it's, it's excellent every year. Oh. Yeah, everybody makes lots of stuff. Okay, so let's time travel. So if you could go back in time and tell your, let's say your 20-year-old self, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Well, my issue is relaxing. So I would just say relax a little bit. It's not necessarily tension that reacts to a situation it's my rpms like when mm. they get revved up it feels i feel it as my body recognizes it as tension i just don't attach the bad feeling to the tension so I'll develop a way to not feel it quite as strongly because it wears me out right and you spend your energy spinning your hard drive or spinning your wheels as opposed to enjoying the process quite as much is that what yeah you're that's we, yeah, when it interrupts process that's when i mean because you really we, that's all we really have especially it's it's a very false idea to attach success in artistic ventures to what happened after you know whether uh if it sold if it whatever you know that's just you can't judge artistic that can be a, a unit of measure for artistic situations but it can't measure the success so you have to be really cognizant of of did you were you as present as you can be during the process did you take the ideas as far as you can is it as conscionable to humans and the planet as it can be you have to decide those things and for me if they're not all met met, then that's not a lot of gray area it goes from fantastic to failure real fast which is slightly irritating well, yeah, just slightly. Man, the wisdom you're spewing, Todd, is just profound. <laughs> I've just been lucky to tumble through life in this funny way. I recognize that I've had an unusual way. But I, I also know that I have I have a few good secrets to tell for those of us that need to know about how to get through it. You know, it's yeah. not easy, but you can if you just st- if you really stick to your assessment of your successes as personal ones, then you're going to survive fine. Just getting to that place is sometimes pretty difficult, though, when the outside world is sort of, you know, when your survival depends on successes. Oh, a- exactly. Or an awful out. boss. Imagine you would have like somebody with, uh, I've seen this in many design studios where the just the lead of the studio has got an agenda or they've got a cruel streak or it's just weird. It's kind of like the, I, I don't know, it's just not, the, not a system I wanted to participate in. So I wanted to make sure whatever situations that I can control, I mean, I do step into ones that I don't control that have attributes that I don't respect, but it is what it is. But things I do control, I try to make sure that we've all honored that. Because in the end, all you have is the experience you've had with your your pals. And, you know, maybe it brought some, and some great joy that it brought to others and maybe some financial success. So that's that's fine. But really for us, all that is is if we did it as well as we could have. So it sounds like you're able to recognize too when you're in a system where there are some people who are operating Let's call it from an imp- from impure intentions. They're they're just their own dysfunction is getting in the way. They're cruel or their ego or whatever. Do you have any situations or advice for recognizing that and then navigating around it? I do. Yes. And so the first thing is is just that recognizing it without judgments because dickish behavior. They're just probably a dick, and that's whatever. You can't you <laughs> <Yeah>. know <laughs> just accept their dickishness and move on if you can, or. Uh, 
find ways to not judge. You're only going to get upset at their behavior if you're judging it. I'm not being taken seriously. So if you just include that in trading your time, I'm trading my time to endure this person's false information and do this work. And then in your head, it's all just part of it. You can kind of survive it. But I would say one of the best things is don't ride things into the ground. It's important to stick with things and make sure your ideas can go all the way. But if you're in a situation that you know in, in your heart that is not suiting you, or you're not prospering, or you're not doing your best work, most importantly, if you're not doing your best work, then you need to go. And uh, you just and elsewhere, just it doesn't matter where, just elsewhere. And yeah. then you'll you'll find a hopefully you'll find a community that works. But I was having dinner once with a, a friend of mine that writes a, a, a really popular TV show. And, and she was talking about the writer's room and how important it is in the writer's room that there's no poison. So if anybody in the writer's room does not have the perfect attitude, they get booted at once. And, and that, was a, that was a good eye-opener for me because I tend to let things kind of go. And, and endure. I, I, I don't mind crazy people at all. And so I can endure them very well. Uh, but there does come a time where it's like, ah, this is not a good fit. So I'm, I'm quicker to respond to that that stuff. But I think for anyone personally going through it, just recognize your worth. If someone's belittling you, it's about them. It's not about you. Um, if you've done something wrong, accept it and, and choose to do better next time. And if you're talking about wrong in a subjective field, just remember that. Because like if we're looking at a painting and I love it and you hate it, we're both right. Yeah, I think it's very important to recognize the toxicity, is that infecting the other people in the collaborative process? Or is that just something that I'm struggling to endure? You do. And it, it's, it's one, it can be that any toxicity in a design studio must be removed. It's so counterintuitive. That, that is just the, the death nail to creativity is, is you know, an, an unopened heart or a toxic situation. And it's, so, it's such a shame because you're, it's, uh, you know, you're shooting your own foot off with a behavior like that. But as a creative, we have to, you know, we have to self-preserve. You have to kind of, you ought to hang on to your heart and your, your center. And it's, it's not easy, you know, it's not easy, but it's, it's part of it. Just try to learn early on that your opinion is fine and that's enough. Man, if I had learned that so many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> You've lived a very rich, full life, solid relationships, a, an amazing sort of creative studio that you get to satisfy your curiosity and keep on a learning curve for the bulk of your life. What, it's hard for me to even imagine, like, what would you add to that? What do you want more of? What would make your life even better? I'm very interested in new medium. So I'm endlessly shuffling what's in front of me. I have the same approach no matter what I'm doing, but the ingredients change all the time. And I'm very interested in, in film these days. So I've been writing off and on for a while now. So I think that's probably going to be the next thing that I haven't, I'm pretty green at, but I'm super psyched about is uh, going into film. Well, can you tell us anything more? Well, um, yeah, uh, I don't know if I, I don't, I'm not comfortable really talking about the project yet, but it, it but are, it's, but you say you're a, writing. Yeah, I'm writing. Yeah. With, yeah, my friend, uh, John Bland and we've, uh, yeah, it's coming along. I'm sorry. I, I, I sound like I'm just, being evasive but it, it, I'm, I'm very very excited about it I love writing and I love reading mm-hmm. that sounds so simplistic but it's very true and then when you see some like magic like a, a structure a sentence structure by Dorothy Parker is just as gorgeous as a the most epic couture gown you know you it's just this when everything can be sparkly in the right hands mm-hmm. and that's when it becomes fascinating so I, I'm excited to look, figure out what 
there is to say in film that someone might want to hear. It's interesting because it's not like what we do at Kidmade, which is, you know, we're in service to, this is a different thing. You're not, as a director, you're not in service to humanity. You're trying to do something different. So I like flipping the hats around. Yeah, that sounds I love exciting. This, this image of a rotating hat and you can just sort of spin it to be what you need it to be in the moment. Yeah, that's really what it feels like. Like a little, those propeller beanies is, is my visual image. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works. It's, it's just, you know, once the glue is there, you can turn it in, in any direction and figure out what to do. <laughs> so what about you personally? Do you have any big adventures coming up or any goals that you want to accomplish? Well, I'm garden possessed. I just love it. I've always loved it. We, like, we would go on walks as a kid and endlessly but my mom would name every plant and we'd have to repeat it so she was teaching us all the names of everything and it's it's stuck so now um i'm possessed in the greenhouse with propagation and i'm really it's like uh, almost to the point of, of actual possession i can't wait to go see if the tomato plants grow in a quarter of an inch and it gets a little a little nutty so that that to me is <laughs> my favorite and, and then the way i was able to turn that passion is we debuted our first kid made modern garden collection comes out in february with uh target stores so we, you know, that, that's the thing. I, I, I really have found a way to enjoy all my passions and then find a way to, to share our sort of fine-tuned knowledge of it. It's, it's, nice. it's a nice way to go about things. Well, um, you mentioned a film-related project you're working on that you can't talk about yet and a garden product for children with Kid Made Modern. What about anything else you might want to mention that's coming out or has just been released that you'd like to share with our listeners? Let's see. Well, um, we certainly spoke about the kidmate stuff, but where what we've we've just just as now coming out is the home collection and the clothing. So we're tra- we're finding our sensibilities. If if you like what we do, it kind of works in a lot of different areas, and that's been really really fun. I kind of reconstructed our old couture team from the design days and we make making a very small handful of completely handmade clothing hand embroidered hand sewn they're very very beautiful and ridiculously expensive which is seems once ridiculous in itself to make expensive children's clothes but they are very 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 beautiful <laughs> well beauty <laughs> matters we know that it it sure does matter and yeah and and bothering to bother matters bothering to bother yep yeah. it counts it does well, and, yeah. and figuring out which bothers are worth the bother. Yeah. Most people just aren't willing to throw themselves in, I think. And that's, I think that comes from caution, not from a, a lack of ability. People are, I, I've always found that almost anybody that told me they can't is not, that's not real. It's not, I mean, I, I can't jump to the moon. Yes, that's real. But if you think something about your abilities, like realistic abilities, it's just probably false or something you've heard parroted to you at some point. I recognize uh, at, at my age now how truly blessed I was to have parents that were so encouraging. They just were, they were, I was like growing up with, what is that, that comedy rule that when you're doing improv, it's, it, you, you always go yes and, you know, it's oh, never yeah. no. The yeah, I had yes and. Improv is agreement, like you don't shut it down in the middle, yeah. Exactly, and that's the, that's sort of my childhood. And I think that because I've embraced that, it's the, that method an approach to business or any of the projects has really served me pretty, pretty well and created a peaceful environment in most cases. Well, it served you pretty well. And then you've turned around and served us the greater creative population pretty well by example. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you. Well, for you're what very you're sweet doing. to say. 
<laughs> and thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners. There, This is just so full of golden wisdom. Mm-hmm. I am very excited about this. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I, In my head, I'm kind of retired from doing this stuff. So I'm pleased you guys asked me and I'm glad I did it. So th- thank you for your time. We are too. Thank you. So Todd Oldham, Whoa. Amy, this guy was like my tween hero. He's still my hero. He's even more my hero now that we've gotten to talk I to know. him. I, I wasn't kidding. I really wish he was my brother. And no no uh, disrespect to my actual brother. I love him too. But <laughs> I can't even imagine how my life would be different if I had a partner in crime like him or somebody that could just validate my kooky creativity all through my youth, you know? Seriously. He just seems like he's has this uncanny way of keeping it all in perspective, too. That trip to Tehran when he was a kid blew my mind. Well, I mean, he talked about the fact that he looked out the plane window and he didn't see any divisions between space and that he realized that these divisions were, these boundaries were just made up mm-hmm. constructs. And that was like his eye-opening moment. And it kind of pervades everything he does and and the way that he thinks and the way that he works. I thought it was so crucial, too, that, well, first of all, the the craft table was the hearth of the home that he grew up in. And he's absolutely right. Like, some of my fondest memories with my family, we weren't really a very craft-centric family, but my fondest memories were the times that we did family crafts together, like dyeing Easter eggs and making Christmas ornaments and... Um, cobbling things together in my dad's like sort of construction area. (laughs) Like those are the moments when there's something activated when your hands are working in concert with your brain. And when your, your family has designated time and permission for you to do this, he's right. The conversations that come out of that, it's not fluff it's dinner table conversation but it's coming out at the craft table which i think makes it even like more activated i thought what was so powerful about that whole rich family life too is he said that it made him it made him process oriented rather than outcome oriented yeah i wrote that down but he also said that he feels it Mm -hmm. in his body which i thought was really interesting because like that sometimes that happens to me you know, you're, you get so emotional or so um, interested in something that it's almost like your, your mind and your body are one. Oh, it's a very physiological response. I feel it too. I, I feel like, you know, how some of us have our senses are sort of hyperactivated. Like some of us are super tasters. Um, I don't know if they have more taste buds or whatever, but flavors are super strong. Yeah. Uh, I've always felt like my nervous system feels things really strongly. Like, Mm. does that make sense? Like, I react Mm -hmm. to things in a very strong way through my nervous system. And I feel things that other people don't feel. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, he said that that feeling, he's had it his whole life, but that he, you know, found that sometimes it becomes tension. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And that can be a, a little bit of a hindrance to, you know, him enjoying the process. Mm-hmm. But he talked about how important that process is and that that's what is 
the ultimate goal um, if he can be within that process. I also thought it was really fascinating that he, because he went to so many different schools, that he was the invisible guy with weird shoes that nobody had a story about. Because I think that would be really painful for some people. But I think because he had such a rich and validating home life, um, he was able to sort of observe the world with a level of detachment that a lot of adolescents don't have the luxury to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Because they're still trying to s- seek um, validation or permission from the outside world if they're not getting it from home. And I thought that was that was really fascinating because he does have this um, the kind of wisdom that seems like he's always looking at everything from an airplane, you know, <laughs> like like this over this grand overview of how things work and how people interact and who's poison in the room and he's seeing it from a higher vantage point from a wiser perspective oh, he's just awesome i know so awesome <laughs> so awesome. i wrote down so much good goodness from this one um i think there's going to be a lot of fantastic quotes and and there's just so much wisdom little nuggets that can be pulled out of this but what i really um i really liked about the way he runs his office is that it seems very democratic and that everybody's opinion is important. um, And everybody is a valid uh, contributor to the the whole project. And I I love that because it it really, you're not working to please just your boss, you know, you're working toward the success of of something coming together um, as a group. It's like a team. It, it's not like this hierarchy of like your boss has to say, you know, thumbs up and then it has to go to his boss to get the thumbs up. Yeah. And he's not he's not training everybody in the Todd Oldham way of doing things or the Todd Oldham style. What he recognizes is that all these different perspectives, all these different ways of thinking that come into his studio, that's the greatest asset. That's the real richness. And if he interferes with that, he's not getting the maximum of their potential. And I think this is really key. I think he's kind of comfortable with the uncertainty of the outcome because he is so process-oriented. He can actually get the best work out of these people, which makes them happier, which makes them more fruitful. Like, everything is just enhanced because of it. I also wrote down that he's comfortable on unpaved roads and trading time. Yep. And that it's a way of seeing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also your opinion is fine and that's enough. I'm going to get a fucking t-shirt with that on it. Dude, we need a, you know what we need is a motivational calendar, like with a Todd <laughs> quote for every month. Just we do. Live your life according to Todd Oldham and everything's going to totally be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told you the story of when I met him once. I met him, he, uh, Todd and Tony backstage at a, a TCA event, which is the Critics Association. It's a TV thing. We were both like premiering new shows on a scripts network he had handmade modern coming out on hgtv and freeform furniture was coming out on diy for me so we hung out in the green room and he also dropped a wisdom treasure he said no is the new yes and i loved that because i at the time i was overextending myself and i was saying yes to everything because i didn't i don't Mm -hmm. know i just i was green and i didn't think i had a choice and he said no is the new yes and i was like oh my god i'm supposed to be really curating how I spend my energy. 
It's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're doing all of this, I mean, I guess in the beginning of your career, it's okay to say yes to everything because you don't really know what you're good at or what's going to work out for you career wise. And I I think it's good to be more open, um, especially when you have all that energy. <laughs> um, but I think as you grow older, and you like know, what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you want to do versus what you don't want to do. I think at that point, it's totally fine to pick and choose, you know, what you want to do. Jamie, here's what I want to do. I want to keep having conversations with amazing people like that for the rest of my life because All right. that is the kind of thing that absolutely lights my fire. Let's make it happen. Okay. Thanks for listening. To see images of Todd and Todd's work, you can click the link in the details for this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the mood, please rate and review us. It really helps us connect with new listeners and share these stories. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, a.k.a. 2VDE Media, with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.